Welcome to UQ Yarns, where I talk with people who are doing amazing work in improving the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. My name is Marie Toombs. I'm a very proud Gamilaroi Cooma woman with traditional lands in northwestern New South Wales and southwestern Queensland. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to acknowledge the Turrbal and the Yagara peoples of Mianjin, otherwise known today as Brisbane. I pay my respect to their custodianship of the lands. I pay my respect to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country and recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. Today I have the great pleasure of having Greg Pratt with me. Greg and I go back about 20 years I reckon. Yeah, probably yeah. Yeah, to uh, our days as students at the University of Southern Queensland where we were much better looking. <laughs> <laughs> but Greg is the, um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander manager um, at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research and has done some wonderful work around genomics but also in assisting uh, non-Indigenous researchers around co-design and how to work effectively um, within the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander space. So thank you for joining me. That's all right. Thank you for inviting me. No worries. All right. So first of all, who's your mob and where do you come from? So I'm a Kwandamuka man, a descendant of the Nunakal tribe of Stradbroke Island, uh, specifically the Brown family. Um, and, uh, but I also grew up with the Kukuyalanji and Kukutaipan people of far north Queensland. So in the middle of the Cape, um, in a little town called Laura. So my father was one of the first uh, Aboriginal relics rangers, um, sort of like an archaeologist uh, responsible back in the day for documenting and, and caretaking for uh, sites of significance um, for Aboriginal, uh, well it was Aboriginal people mainly through the Cape and central Queensland as well. Um, so one of his first postings was actually to Laura. So I had the opportunity to grow up there. So barefoot, blue-eyed, fair hair. It's still a grey, fair sort of a a bit complexion. Of in it. Yeah, still a bit <laughs> of blonde in it. Um, but um, growing up in a very traditional environment, so um, which was a wonderful experience. Um, I had the chance to grow up with some of the most esteemed elders um, for the Cape, uh, you know, have since passed. But um, it was a wonderful, wonderful place for me to grow up. I went to primary school there. I didn't wear shoes until I was about uh, 12 years old. And then dad and mum put me on the back of a ute and drove, uh, drove in five hours from Laura to, to Cairns and went to St Augustine's Boarding College in uh, Cairns and uh, went there through my secondary school years. Um, and that was a wonderful experience as well. I only boarded for the first year or a couple of years and then became a day student because my mum and dad moved down from the Cape to, to, uh, to Cairns. So I had the opportunity to then go as a day student. Then from there, I went to Toowoomba, um, which is where I undertook a Bachelor of Science majoring in psychology. What um, made you pick Toowoomba? It was, it, I came to Brisbane, so as a small boy uh, coming from, and I was 17 years when I went to, to university, so as a small boy coming from uh, Cairns and an even smaller community in Laura, mm. I came down to Brisbane and it scared the bejeebas out of me. Um, I came here, there were people everywhere, there were cars everywhere, there were people, you know, um, doing their own things and it was, it was just terrifying. 
And so I, I, I came to uh, a number of the universities for their orientation program. And then I, I uh, did an orientation program at uh, Toowoomba. Um, and uh, I loved it because it was a smaller space. It was familiar to me. Um, and uh, there were a lot of black faces, you know. Um, it has a higher proportion um, per capita of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people than perhaps what Brisbane does. Um, so it just felt a little bit more relaxed. When you're 17 years old, going to university is in itself a big thing, you know. When you come from a family and you're the first person to go to university and be so far away from home and from mm. family, it was a big thing. So the only way I was going to do that, because I had an interest in psychology, was to actually find somewhere where I felt a little bit more comfortable. It was still hard. It was still mm. difficult and uh, eventually I got through that course of study um, and um, went on to other things in other states in mental health from there. So uh, yeah, it's been, and now I, I work fortunately at QMR, yeah, which is amazing. a you know, great space to be. Mm. So I just want to go back upstream um, briefly, but you mentioned that you were first in family yeah. to go to university and I'm just wondering where where did that motivation come from? So in terms of that, and I've got a particular interest because um, when I did my PhD, I did it around that um, bridging program that yes, was yep. run out of USQ. That's the one. <laughs> so yeah, so the bridging program for students who didn't finish years 11 and 12, yeah, um, providing yep. opportunity. And that's what gave me my start as well, as you know. Yeah. But with my PhD, I had a look at um, those types of um, pathway programs across Australia and without, without exception I found that everybody who got through those and then went into mainstream mm. uni and consequently completed, um, they were either not first in family or they'd been to a boarding school and ah. so you've mentioned boarding yeah. school and yeah I'm just curious so yeah. what, what was what was the driving force? Well, to be honest, I, I think it was probably more at a familial level, you know. Um, so on my father's side, that's that's my Ab Aboriginal heritage. On my mother's side, that's, you know, my Irish heritage. And so mum always valued school and academia. It was always a, a sort of a, a, a pathway that, that was valued. For my father, my father left school, I think, when he was six years, seven years old or something like that, um, you know, and um, then he went into working on stations and the like. But uh, what I will say is, is that even though it was something that he didn't, you know, value for himself, it was still something that he valued for his children. So, you know, for myself and my brother, ac academia was still important. Um, and, and so I had a real interest in school. Um, even before I went to boarding school. So growing up in a small community with a tiny primary school of about 20 students in total, um, three in my own grade, one teacher that covered the whole of that, that school or what have you, um, we had a really great curriculum. You know, we did a variety of different things and I had this, this real interest in reading and writing and, and maths and science and all of these things that was supported at that young age initially by my mum and by her family and similarly by my, my father and that, that side of the family, but then beyond that, um, through my teachers, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, if there's one thing I would say is, is that, you know, if family and your supports and, um, you know, uh, your friends and so forth are supportive of something, um, it goes a long way to inspiring you to go on. 
in the boarding school space, it was, it was a great space to learn. It was a great space to learn how to do things very efficiently, you know, and how to be focused on a curriculum um, and how to achieve the goals that you needed to at an academic level to get the grades that you felt were important, you know. So I was super, super competitive. I remember being in high school, being super, super competitive. Um, so I didn't just strive for A's. I always strived for 100%. And if I got 99%, I used to argue with the teacher about the fact that I'd lost a mark here, you know. Um, I really, really had to do it. And, um, and then I got to, to university. It was a very different environment, um, which was, you know, uh, a much freer environment. You know, nobody was there watching what you were doing or making sure that you went to classes and so forth. And so as a 17-year-old who hadn't had a lot of exposure to you know, outside of a school environment. Um, the world was my oyster, and I probably struggled a little bit to sort of balance that, that sort of social versus academic mm. versus, and I didn't get the marks that I probably should have or could have gotten in my first couple of years at university. But I did get through, yeah. which was a great thing, because one of the things I will say is, is that I persevered, you know, and that's probably a quality that, that I did inherit from, you know, my boarding, boarding school years and my, my uh, going to a, a, a private school environment. The other thing I would say is, is that I remember my mother only part, finished paying off my high school um, sort of, you know, fees when I finished university. I didn't know this, but, you know, she, she'd made an arrangement because I liked school and because the school was a very sort of supportive environment that she could just continue to pay as she could to pay off those fees. Mm -hmm. So she didn't actually finish paying off my high school fees until um, the year I graduated from university. Oh, wow. um, so it was amazing. being supported by people like that, I yeah. think, as well. So would you consider your mum one of your uh, major role models? Like who, who played that role in your life? Um, and you know, is that what makes you tick? Uh, yes, and, and uh, you know, like I say, I think it is family. Um, so, so some of the, you know, I've, I've had a number of different role models for different purposes. And one of the things I will say is I've learned over the course of time is, is that no one's perfect. You know, we all have things that make us strong and things that we're perhaps not so strong in. Um, and if you as a person are trying to learn or be mentored through a process, it's probably best to recognise that early on and to try to find the things that somebody's strong in and learn from those strengths and then similarly find other role models who can support you in your learning endeavours in different ways, you mm -hmm. know. But one single person I wouldn't say. I'm, I'm the, the, what would you call it, the... Um, the the output of a number of people's sort of contribution you know it takes a a community to raise a child you know or to raise an adult and and sort of i've, I've probably benefited from that my teachers my parents the other people i would say were really really instrumental in sort of setting my um what do you call it my ethic moral compass were my grandparents so my nana being of aboriginal descent um was an elder you know for our community and a very very strong woman um, an advocate for, you know, Aboriginal uh, rights here locally as a, as a, as a, a Kwandamooka woman, a Nunaka woman. And my grandfather, who was non-Indigenous Irish, um, was a very passionate supporter of her and uh, never had anything bad to say about anyone. And I think, you know, that as a value system was, was 
sort of, you know, um, uh, a foundation for me, you know. Um, he used to say things I think we could all do a lot to learn from, things like, you know, if you haven't got anything good to say, don't say anything, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, um, you know, and fight for family, you know, and, and, and help and support one another. I'm a very, very positive person, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, my grandparents were probably some of the most instrumental leads in my life in terms of setting my moral compass, yeah, you know. Nice. Um, they didn't teach me how to read or write <laughs> or how to write a report or, or things like this, but they taught me some things that are fundamentally, you know, absolutely important, especially for, for you know, our countrymen and countrywomen. Mm. Well, I know that you've worked really hard to, to get where you are today and you've had personal struggles and health issues and a whole range of things. And yet you're still with us, yeah, yep. you know, and you're, you're strong and you're doing some great work over in QIMRs. Did you want, did you want to talk to us about, um, yeah, what it's been like over the last couple of years for you and where you've landed in terms of, yeah, where yeah, you yeah. are in 2020 during COVID? <laughs> so, yeah, look, I think that I originally, so I've been there now, I think seven or eight years, and it's been a wonderful journey, actually, um, and I've been privileged to be there. Um, when I first applied for the role at QIMR and, and was offered the job, um, I saw a lot of opportunity at QIMR for not only me to apply my skill set, my skill set is really in stakeholder engagement and with a background in mental health and sort of supporting people towards, you know, um, establishing systems that might support change, you know, and for the benefit of our mob. So QIMR is a medical research institute, obviously, the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. It was established um, 75 years ago, in fact, as a statutory entity. So we have a responsibility as a statutory entity to conduct research for the benefit of Queensland, and in particular for priority peoples of Queensland. Uh, has a lot of history going back to working in regional locations. A lot of our work in the infectious disease space um, started in a lot of those spaces. So mosquito, dengue fever, malaria, um, and, and a number of different uh, infectious disease type spaces. And now we do work across a number of different spaces. So we, we do work in chronic diseases, mental health, infectious diseases, and, uh, and cancer. So our four programs are four major programs. We've got 600 people who work within the Institute. I think there's about 60 labs in total um, and across those four programs. So my role when I came on board was to explore with QIMR and support QIMR to see how the work it was doing now within those spaces could be a benefit to Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so that's really what I was most uh, enthusiastic about. Um, and it seemed like a space that we weren't historically necessarily as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people involved with a lot. You know, we've had some, um, you know, histories over the last, you know, hundred or so years of, of medical research that have not been so great, you know, um, where the community hasn't been involved, engaged or led um, work in a code from position of co-design that you spoke about before. Um, rather, it's been on us rather than with us. So, and that's changed, that's changed most, you know, in, in the last little while. 
Uh, so most recently, I had the opportunity uh, to source some funding from Queensland Genomics, so, which was previously Queensland Genomics Health Alliance, which was uh, an entity established uh, under the governance of actually the University of Queensland as the administering institute for Queensland Genomics Health Alliance, Queensland Genomics, um, but funded principally by uh, Queensland Health and Queensland Government. Uh, so their role over the last, I think it's been about five years that they were around, was to see the implementation of what they call precision medicine into the health sector. So, you know, we talk about primary health, we talk about tertiary health, we talk about hospital-based care and so forth. Precision medicine is the, the you know, the, the hope, aware, ambition of where medicine's gonna go in the future. So in a nutshell, what it will mean is, is that you'll be able to go to your doctor, uh, you'll be able to order a blood test and the doctor will be able to, to tell you based on your the genetic information that they extract from, from that test, whether there are particular illnesses that you're at risk of, um, more at risk of because of your genetic history. Similarly, if there are particular medications that might be contraindicated, so likely to have an adverse outcome for you, or medications that you more, are more likely to benefit from. And this is why they call it precision medicine, because it's being more precise in working out what treatment might work for you uh, in the long run. So in order to get to that point, however, um, a lot of work has to happen in the research space. A lot of work has to happen in the space they call genomics research and genetics research, which is sort of defining, you know, looking at uh, your genes and how it, uh, how it will benefit or be impacting particular illnesses or particular medications and so forth. So some of that work has happened, oh, well, it's happened across the globe over the last 20 years, starting with a human genome project and then going to a human genome uh, diversity project. And when they did this human genome diversity project a number of years ago, which was looking at collecting samples from peoples from all over the world, it was a different space 20 years ago. And so minority groups were principally the target of this particular project that happened at an international level. And researchers went out and collected samples from people without their consent, without adequate information about what they were being involved in. And a lot of First Nations people across the globe opted out of that particular project because of concerns about the way that they were involved in that project. As a consequence of that, 20 years later, there's a lot of all of that work that laid the foundation for the next sort of um, phase of, of precision medicine genomic research. Unfortunately, all of that research references back to uh, what they call uh, reference material and biobanks and so forth that contain reference material. And because we rightfully opted out 20 years ago for very just reasons, unfortunately those biobanks don't uh, necessarily include samples from our peoples. They also don't include samples that represent the diversity of Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander peoples from across this nation. So pre-colonisation, 500 groups here, you know, there's something like uh, 40,000 years worth of difference between the peoples of the southwest of Australia and the people of the northeast of Australia. That's like comparing people from the UK to the people of Malaysia, mm. you know. Significant genetic differences between Aboriginal peoples of this continent. So the goal of our project, <laughs> I know I've gone around and around, it's a fairly hard, long story to sort of no, wrap up in a, in, a, in a nutshell, but the, the goal of our project was to ask people in this state more principally, um, whether we wanted to be involved in this research. Because there were some myths 
when we talk to our researchers that were doing research in this space at the moment about why they weren't doing this sort of research and involving Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people, there were some myths around why they weren't doing that, that support this, this behaviour of not involving our mob. And those myths were things like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't want to be involved in this sort of work. Um, this is taboo, anything to do with blood, anything to do with saliva, anything to do with biospecimens is taboo and sacred and so it's a no-go zone. And so we wanted to ask our mob, do you want to be involved? You know? And so we did a series of, of sort of uh, community and stakeholder consultations across Queensland, not, not exhaustively across Queensland, I will say. We didn't get to go everywhere because unfortunately, you know, you can't go everywhere, it's a big state. Um, but we did go to a number of places. So we went to the Torres Strait, we went to Weeper, we went to Cairns, Townsville, Rockhampton, Toowoomba, Brisbane, and since then, a number of other communities. And we asked them, this is what Precision Medicine hopes to be able to offer you. Um, do you want to be involved with that? Do you want to see that benefit for the generations to come? And almost unanimously, people said, yes, we do. Um, and almost unanimously, people said, but we want to be involved in a way which is self-determining, you know, which we have control over, in a relationship built on trust and respect of one another. You know? And we want to do this in partnership. So what we then did is, is that informed by those conversations and supporting that community self-determination, we wrote up a set of guidelines, which is called Genomic Partnerships, which you were involved in writing up yes. and a number of other academics from around, uh, around Queensland were involved with, um, as well as community health service providers and champions and so forth. Um, and that serves as a guide for researchers who are probably non-Indigenous, to give them some, some information about this is how you start a conversation uh, and the, um, the underlying core sort of um, elements to what partnership looks like for genomic research with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, so that guideline's out there at the moment, you can find it online, Google Genomic Partnerships, QIMR, and what I will say is, is while it's something that we developed, we developed it you know, with community and we were very honoured to be able to sort of share that journey you know, with community. Yeah. So it's their document. And I can attest hopefully. to that, like the, the, um, it was a very, very thorough um, community consultation process. Well, thank you. Um, in terms of the researchers, what has been the uptake of accessing that document and feedback from the researchers in terms yeah, yeah. of the output? Yeah, well, I think the feedback we've got thus far, so that's, that came out approximately 12 months ago. Can you believe that? Because <laughs> it feels like only just yesterday, but with the current you know, circumstances or what have you, things seem to just, just go flying by. So the feedback that we've got is, is that um, it's been generally quite positive, actually. Um, it serves as a really good guide and it gives some practical sort of, sort of uh, hints to people yeah. about what to do and how to start a conversation. The other thing I'd say is, is that it really sets a case which is, is that um, dispelling some of those myths. So if those myths served as the basis for behaviours that were to not consult with community, those myths have since been dispelled. So researchers who are purporting or proposing to do research now in the genomic space, if there is a clear benefit for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples you know, as a part of 
the Australian community, obviously, you know, then there's a bit of an obligation to explore those conversations, regardless of whatever myths might have been held in the past because they've since been dispelled. So the feedback's been fairly positive. Um, the other thing I would say is, is that at a national level, what we can be very proud of as a Queensland community, you know, health service community in general, you know, research and so forth, is, is that that document was actually the first of its kind in Australia. Mm. You know? Second of its kind in the world in that New Zealand released a similar document a couple of years ago, um, but the first of its kind in Australia. So Queensland can be proud of the fact that we're sort of leading some of the, um, the, the discussion and conversation around what community involvement, engagement looks like yeah. from a, a genomics research sort of a, a space or what have you. So, yeah, but the feedback from researchers has been very positive. People are using it. I know that a number of ethics committees now have it as part of their standard sort of um, documentation that they refer researchers to. Um, and, and they're similarly becoming aware of some of the guidance, guidance that's offered in that document. Um, and so, you know, uh, and then obviously all of the research partners that were involved in, that, in the development of that have also um, served as testament to its use, adaptability and so forth. But we are starting to see some impact of that document. We've got a couple of citations of the document recently um, and uh, I think a number of people, I think it's something like at the moment around about maybe 200 reads or something like that. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, since it came out less than 12 months ago, I want to say. So. It's interesting that whole, um, you know, these misconceptions and, and fears, but I find, uh, you know, I've had a few really honest conversations with researchers who say they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a really great example of, you know, <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, but here's a guide that will help and, and lead you. But, yeah. you know, that piece just about simply communicating and you know applying the same practice that you would over any participant or would be um, research yeah, yeah. is to engage is to find out whether this is important and i think um yeah we've got a long way to go in terms of bringing that together but you know it's great that we have got and we're starting to have collectively some good case studies around where yeah, this is done absolutely. and it's done well absolutely yeah. 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 I think the 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 thing with one one of the key messages in that document is actually the idea of starting a conversation, the importance of starting a conversation, the importance of, you know, respecting the time and the um, the spirit of developing a relationship, yeah. you know, yeah. with people. Um, so hopefully that comes across in that. And hopefully it does serve to inspire people to talk with people, you mm -hmm. know not necessarily researchers to talk with community or clinicians to talk with, you know, um, academics or whatever, but people to talk with people, you know? No, absolutely. Um, so where to next? Oh, I don't know. Probably a holiday at the point. No, um, <laughs> I think so out of that actual project, we, we um, the, so, so what I will say, the feedback from the community has been quite, um, and all the people involved in that have been quite positive. One of the things they did say is, yes, we have an appetite for genomics, and yes, we want to know more. What we would also like is some sort of a resource that speaks more at a clinical interface. So what we just have finished up is a suite of health literacy resources around genetics.
genetic testing and counselling. So there, um, so the local service here in Queensland is Genetic Health Queensland, and they provide a free uh, genetic testing and counselling service for people who may have a suspicion or whom their GP may have suspicion that there might be some sort of a rare genetic condition um, where they might actually benefit from testing to see if that's the case. Um, so that service, Genetic Health Queensland, um, provides services across Queensland. They're, uh, they're based here in Brisbane, but they do offer some clinics in other spaces as well. So we developed up a, a suite of resources promoting that service to our mob. Um, and that project was also in collaboration with Quake, the Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council. Um, and at the moment, like I say, there's a number of brochures that speak for each region and what genetic testing looks like region by region. So if you're from a particular region, let's say Mackay, um, there should be a brochure available either at your local community control health service or at the local hospital and health service with some information about genetic testing. So those have gone out now. Um, the other thing we did was to develop up an animation called Your Blood, Your Story, mm. um, which was narrated by a wonderful Aboriginal woman um, and uh, it, it really talks to people about what genetic counselling and genetic testing might be about, why you might want to explore it with your GP and how your GP can go about getting in contact with Genetic Health Queensland to make a referral if it's indicated. So, And giving some people a little bit more information about that space. So that, that health literacy resource and those health literacy resources were developed through a series of workshops across Queensland as well, asking people you know, about what they thought would be necessary that they might need to know in a resource and then using um, that information to develop up those resources. Yeah. So those are resources developed by the community, um, you know, supported by us. So I'd say they're community developed resources, hopefully. And it's a, it's a lovely resource if you have the chance. Um, Google, you know, or whatever the case may be for your search engine. Um, uh, your Blood, Your Story, QIMR, it's on YouTube. You can you can watch, I think it's about four minutes worth of video. It's very good. I had a look at it the other day. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you sound very busy. And yeah. yeah, and I know every time I catch up with you, there's some new adventure that you're on. So, um, <laughs> just given you, you're down the path, not too far down the path, but you're down the <laughs> down path the a bit. Track. Yeah. <laughs> what would you go back and say to your younger self about where you are today? Like, what would you tell yourself? Would you do anything differently? Would you get a PhD? Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep being asked. So I'm not Dr. Pratt. If anyone is quoting me, it's just Greg Pratt. Um, I haven't had the chance to go and get a PhD uh, at the moment. Um, and look, what I would say is, is fit for purpose, is look at the things that you um, want to do long term, but don't feel that that trajectory or, or that endpoint uh, you have to be committed to in the long term. One of the things I would say is I'm fairly stubborn. Um, my wife can attest to that <laughs> and that uh, my children can definitely attest to that. And that it, maybe be flexible to the idea of where you want to go and how you want to get there. And a lot of people will give you a variety of different opinions about what the best way to do that is. But perhaps just be, you know, honest and, and uh, humble to yourself and give yourself a little bit of time to sort of work out where you want to go. I think at 17, I had this, this, this drive that I had to do, go to uni. I had to become a psychologist. I had to practice in, in clinical sort of spaces and the like. 
And then over the course of life, things come along, you know, things happen, you know, at both a personal and a professional level that, that lead you down or perhaps a different route. And that's not to say that the other route wasn't the wrong one and this is the right one. It's fit for purpose, you know. So be flexible, be kind to yourself and give yourself the opportunity to sort of, you know, take life as it comes, you know. Um, and, and spend a bit of time looking after yourself and yours. Because at the end of it all, um, what will matter the most is your health, your family, and the connections and the responsibility that you ultimately have to ensuring that you do well for others. And my grandfather said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, which I think is absolutely true. And we, you know, without the risk of sounding soft and fluffy, but that whole point about kindness, you yeah. know, I think that... I'm hearing that a lot during this sort of COVID regime, you know, let's just be kind to each other. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but in terms of COVID, I think there has been some nice things oh, that have also come out of that yeah. as well, just about slowing down and, yeah. and, you know, appreciating what we've got and, yeah, celebrate gratitude in terms of, you know, we can sit here and have a conversation together and, um, you know, and not be too fearful of of becoming unwell from COVID and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah. fear is a big driver for behaviour, mm. you know, um, and it can be a big driver for change, but so can hope. Yeah. You know, hope can be as, as, as influential a driver for change, you yeah. know. The thing at the end of it all is, is which do you want to feel? Yeah. Do you want to feel anxious, which is generally a consequence of fear, or do you want to feel, you know, enlightened, hopeful, happy? Mm. And so making those choices about which of those motivators you're going to choose to actually allow, you know, you to, to influence your, you, you know, your journey or whatever is a, is, a, is a thing that you can do. You know, you can't necessarily control all of the things that might happen in your life. And reality is you probably can only control a very few of those. Yeah. Um, but if you choose to have an optimistic view and you choose to engage in a conversation in a way that makes you and others around you feel positive, then that's a nicer space to be in rather than perhaps one based in fear. And like I said, there's a, there's a lot of very positive um, things that we've learned about ourselves, our community and the world at large as a consequence of this situation that we're in at the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And we can choose to, to, and we do, we do need to still be aware of some of the risks that have been heightened as a result of COVID. But similarly, we can also be aware of some of the things that have been highlighted in terms of our strengths, you know, um, and our capacity and our ability to support one another as human beings, which our mob has done for a long, long time. Absolutely. <laughs> and we might end on that note. I think that's a really um, nice place to leave this conversation in terms of hope and the strength and the contribution that we as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can bring to all aspects of research, but um, all parts of life. Absolutely. Hey, yeah. So I'd like to thank you <laughs> thank for you. joining me and for yeah giving up your time. It's always That's all a right. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I'm very inspired by everything <laughs> that you do, and I'll lay off you about the PhD. <laughs>
Maybe but if one you want day. to come and do one, come to UQ. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think oh, that would actually be my preference. absolutely. Okay, we have that yeah, yeah, on record. Yeah. No, look, the University of Queensland is a brilliant space um, and has been for a long, long time and has a lot to look forward to as well as a space that supports our mob, you know. Um, and, and, you know, so I think there, there are a number of spaces where I could go in, and one of those would obviously be the University of Queensland if I chose to go down that, that career path. Well, um, we've got that on record, brother. <laughs> you do, but it's about the time and the ability to do it. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you have enjoyed today's yarn. To listen to other episodes in this series, please visit our website at medicine.uq.edu.au forward slash uq yarns.